the good news is we still have the Word of God. So if you can take your Bibles, now we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 18. And, and from verse 9, so it's, the, um, it's a parable. So it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think one we probably know quite well. And so in verse 9 it says this, And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And this is the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was pl- praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, the swindlers, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And then in verse 13 it says, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went... uh, So this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the the outline for today, I'm going to give you five headings uh, to to track my progress and to follow. Um, So there's going to be five things we're going to see. The first one is going to be, we're going to see one parable is in verse 9. We're going to see one parable, two people, two prayers, one propitiation, and our final point is going to be one, one powerful truth. And so that one truth is what's going to help us understand the, the, whole, the whole meaning of this parable. We want to understand it in a way that we get to a, a clear point that the parable is trying to make. And so in the Christian faith, there's, there's certain truths and there's certain doctrines that are foundational. And this parable contains one of these essential truths. So it's not just a a meaningless parable or something that's of interest to us, but this parable contains an essential truth. And so that's why this parable is so important for us to understand. And so my goal for this morning is that nobody leaves, leaves the building without understanding at the end what this one powerful truth is. So it's a, it's a really important parable. And just before we start, um, just to set the scene, I don't want to give too much context, but just to give a little bit of a background to, to, find, to help us find where we are. Um, if you look in verse 9... Now, passage that we're reading, you see there it says the word righteous. And if you look down at verse 13, um, you see the word sinner. And so we have a righteous person and we have a sinner that make up the, the two main characters in the parable. And throughout the Gospel of Luke and leading up to our passage in chapter 18, the righteous and the sinner have been a common point of discussion. And so you can think of it as the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked, or you can often it just uses the word the tax collectors and the sinners. And so if you go back to the, towards the start of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5, it speaks of Levi, and he gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors, that's one of our people, and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so you see those two people. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And we see see those groups identified. In Luke chapter 7, it says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we see those 
continuing through a few verses later, and, and this is Luke 7, verse 37. It says, And there was a woman in the city who was a, what do you think she is? She's a sinner. And when she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought the, an alabaster vial of perfume. And you know the story. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And they, they were so disgusted, they, they didn't even want to touch these people. And, and you'll see in Luke chapter 15, so we're going through Luke, we're getting closer to our passage. Our passage is in Luke 18, but in Luke chapter 15 verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so then it says this in verse 3, So he told them this parable. And so what, it, what this section in Luke does is he, he starts, Jesus starts to teach in a series of parables. And so that, that's the setting that we kind of come to as we start to look at Luke 18. So you can picture Jesus surrounded by a whole bunch of sinners and tax collectors and the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're all surrounding him, and Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching a whole series of parables, and, and they are surrounding and listening to the greatest teacher that ever lived. And they're listening to the sharpest-minded man that ever walked on our planet. He's, he's not uh, affected by what we call the noetic effects of the fall. We're all, we're all born as sinful people in Adam, but Jesus Christ doesn't suffer from that same, same problem. So they're listening to a remarkable man teaching the Word of God. And in this section of Luke, um, there's several parables. One of them, and you, again, I think you know these, one is the lost sheep, one is the lost coin, and there's the parable of the prodigal son. And so that brings us right up to our passage really in Luke chapter 18. And it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we see straight away those, those characters that have come right through. He, uh, we see the, a righteous person, and we see that which is the Pharisee, and we see a tax collector, which is the, in the parable the worst of sinners. So my first point is, uh, you can see it in verse 9, if you look at verse 9. First point is one parable, and Jesus, verse 9 says, And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed other people with contempt. And so it says he. And so obviously he told this parable, and the he is speaking of Jesus. And, and so Jesus, and I just want you to, to see, like, because this, this parable is being spoken to them, but we're hearing it in church this morning. But just remember who the he is. The he is what the Bible calls God manifested in the flesh. That, that's the person that's speaking and teaching. And the Bible calls this person the fullness of deity, the fullness of God that dwelt in a bodily form. So that, that's the man that is speaking and teaching this parable. And you remember as well, there was the, the voice that came out of heaven and God the Father himself spoke and he said, This is my son whom I love. And what did he say? Hear him, listen to him. And so that's, that's the person who's teaching the parable, and I think that's good to um, put in the back of our minds as well. So the parable, it's not a, a matter of um, a, a religious person's opinion or perspective. We're, we're looking at the very words and the very teaching of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 9, it also says, you can see there, 
It says he told this parable. So my first point, which is a, it's a really simple one to start off, um, my first point is that this is one parable. We have, we have an account of, um, it's not a real event. So it's a, it's a deliberate and perfectly conceived example, and it's made to highlight a particular truth. So there's, um, it's a fictional story, but it has an eye to teach something, a, a real truth to real people, and there's a single point that Jesus wants to teach. He, he has something he wants to say, something he's observed in people, and he wants to particularly construct a parable to get to a single point that he's trying to um, bring out. And so that's our goal, as I've said, is to understand this parable so well that we know exactly what that uh, single point is. But I want you to, to notice as well in, in this first verse, it says, He also told this parable to some people. So there's a particular sort of person that he was addressing. So it's a certain type of thinking that had kind of crept in amongst these, some of these people, not all of them, that, that he wanted to focus in on. It's, it's a way we think. And at the end of uh, verse 9, it identifies the people and it says it was those, and the words of our text say, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's, that's the people that he's got in mind. That's the people who's thinking he's going to correct. So that's really the, um, I want to say this up front, that's the key, that little verse that they trusted in themselves is the key to unlock, unlock the meaning of the whole parable. And, and I want you to see this as well. I want you to see the Greek word that's translated that it says trusted, that they trusted in themselves what it means, and it means really to be confident or to, be, to have confidence in something. So they had confidence in themselves that, that they were righteous. And, um, and I'll say keep that in the back of your mind. So I don't know if you've ever been in a school classroom and suddenly the teacher gives you a hint because they know there's a test coming up. So I'm just saying keep that in the back of your mind that, that, that they trusted, they were confident, they were confident in themselves. But the Pharisee, this Pharisee, um, he, was, he was a good man. He was a righteous man. And the word for righteous, um, so he trusted in himself that he was righteous, is um, dikaios. And a similar word is also used in the same chapter. So just after this parable, um, or two down actually, in the parable there's one called the rich young ruler. And again, it's familiar to us. And the rich, rich young ruler, he walks up to Jesus and he asks, what does he say? He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the word used for good, good teacher, um, is, a, is a synonym. So it's the, it's, a, it's the same or very similar meaning to righteous. And so we can say that righteous or, or good or goodness, they're all synonyms and they're expressing similar ideas. And I think that all I'm trying to say there is that sometimes we can caught up um, talking about Christianity and explaining it to people, saying words like righteous and righteousness and it's got that kind of religious, kind of almost goes in one ear and out the other. But just think of it as goodness, goodness, righteousness. We're good, we're just, we're right. And I think that way, I think these, these concepts that really are quite simple will, will make more sense. Um, and so the rich young ruler as well is, is perfect, a perfect illustration of the type of thinking that the Pharisee in our parable had. And you remember it, it says, Jesus said to him, so this is the uh, rich young ruler, Oh, sorry, this is Jesus. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And, and that's a truth. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And, and this, this rich young ruler, he says, all these things I've kept since my youth. And so this is exactly the sort of person that, he, that uh, Jesus has in mind in the, 
in the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, this, this type of person, this incredible way to think, that he thinks that he actually has the ability to keep God's law perfectly and to meet the standard that God requires of him. And just as, a, as another little point, Jesus also makes known to the rich young ruler uh, that the way to eternal life, because that's the question he was asking, how do I inherit eternal life, is by keeping the commandments. And so if you think about the words of Matthew 5.48, this is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus requires us to be perfect. And so that, that's the standard. So think of this. In Jesus' mind, the standard of law-keeping or the standard of righteousness or the standard to get to eternal life is nothing less than perfection. So that's, that's God's standard. But if you can turn your mind back to our parable, um, there's a second part of our passage and it, uh, that identifies the people Jesus was addressing. So not only did it say that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, it says and, so they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed other people with contempt. And so contempt is a, is a really strong word and it's not just um, an adjective but it's a verb as well. And the English word um, it says viewed with contempt is, is actually just one word in the Greek. And so it speaks of um, more than just what they think, more than just an attitude, but it actually speaks of how they act and what they do. Um, so it's, it means to despise and to utterly treat with contempt. It means to set at naught, which is, which is, you could say, to think nothing of somebody. They think absolutely nothing of these other people. And so it wasn't enough for these people to be proud and lift themselves up but they also looked down on other people with complete, utter contempt and they, and they treated them that way. And so it's no wonder, you imagine, that these people that are surrounding Jesus as he teaches, it's no wonder that these people or the scribes and the Pharisees were grumbling amongst themselves because Jesus was mingling with sinners. They were, they were touching him. They were around him. They were eating with him. And so, so that's our first point. Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling one parable and we've seen something of the setting um, we've seen something of the people Jesus has in mind and, and who he's addressing. And we've also seen something, um, we've also seen that there is a single particular truth that he's trying to communicate to us that, that Jesus wants to make known to people in this parable. So that's the first point. And the second point, we're 20% done, we've got 80% to go if you're... If you're, if you're <laughs> that's how I think when I'm listening to a sermon anyway sometimes. <laughs> Now we're up to point two, so it says our second point is two people. So look at verse 10. It says two men, so there's two people. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And so, so Jesus sets up this parable with two people. And, and to be honest, this is really brilliant. He, he sets up two options. There's a this one and a that one. There's a true and a false. There's a, a wrong way and there's a right way. And intentionally, Jesus has constructed this parable so that there's only two ways there's only two possible options and so at the conclusion and, and I mean and that's just part of the brilliance of the way that Jesus could teach was um, it's just such a powerful and clear way to teach no one can escape this parable because you're all going to put yourself in in the position of one of the two of them and so at the conclusion of this parable everyone's going to see themselves as either in one of those two sides um, and at the end of the sermon hopefully as well you're going to find yourself in one of these two sides. You're going to be one of these two characters, the sinner or the, 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 the Pharisee. Um, and so, so it forces you to know where you stand. 
and 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 that's just a, a powerful device that there's uh, two people. And so, but look at what they do. It says it says in this verse in verse ten, it says they went up to the temple to pray. And so went up. Um, it means to go up or to ascend, and, and the word is an, anabino, and that must, doesn't sound like much, but it says, but you know, I, but I, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I sense, you know, when you look at this parable, you're starting to just scratch below the surface and see quite how, how remarkable this teacher was. It's as if the whole parable is, is like a poem. It's perfectly structured, perfectly crafted, um, not a single word's wasted. And so at the start of this parable, we see, Two people go up to the temple. They're walking up. They're ascending up to the temple. And at the at the end of the at the end of the parable, one person comes down. But in in in, uh, in the translation I'm using here, it says um, the English says at the end one person went to his house. But it doesn't really capture what he's saying. It's the word katabino. So there's anabino, katabino. And at the beginning, two go up to the temple, and at the end, one comes down. And you see, even the sounds of the words are controlled. So he's talking almost, I don't know, I want to say like a rapper, but you know, he's, he's talking with such control over the contrast that he has, over the sound of the words, over the contrast that he sets up, over making people take a, a particular stand and, and, to clear, and to teach a particular truth. It's just a, it's an incredible thing. But, but look at what both men do. So again, in uh, verse 10, it says, they went up, into the temple to pray. I've just said that. And so um, they go up to the temple. And so the temple, you think of the temple, it's the, it's the consecrated or the sacred place, and it represents where the presence of God dwells. That, that's what the temple is. And verse 11, it says that the Pharisee stood. And, and in verse 13, it says, but the tax collector, the other person, it says, standing. So he was standing some way off, but, but they're both standing and so you can see that both men come. They come up to stand before God. And it also says that they both went up to pray. And so this is to pray is to, you know, it's to speak with God. So when you put it all together, these two men were doing much more than walking into a building. We could see they, they were doing much more than attending church in this parable. Um, they are going up to stand before the presence of the holiness of God and to speak with Him. So that's what these two men are doing. And as we continue through the parable, I want you to imagine yourself as if you're going up into the presence of God as well. I want you to put, put yourself um, in this situation and see, see what, how am I going to fare as, as we hear the, the parable unfold? Which, which side am I going to land on? How, do, how does this work out for me? And so the second half of verse 10 um, describes these people a little more. It says, one a Pharisee, that's one of the people is a Pharisee, and the other person is a tax collector, and I, and I really don't want to uh, take too long on this because I think you all know what the tax collectors were. They were the most despised traitors to the Jewish people. They worked for the enemy. The, the Romans ruled over Israel. They had invaded and conquered. And these tax collectors worked against their own people. And, and the Pharisee in this parable, he actually uses the word swindlers to describe. He says, not like that Pharisee, uh, the swindlers. The, and he calls them swindlers um, to describe the tax collector. And I, and I looked up what the word swindlers means, and it, it says, and it means rapacious. And I didn't have a clue what that meant, so I had to look up what, what that meant as well. So I'm, I'm two layers in trying to work this out. And he says, rapacious means to be aggressively greedy or grasping. And I was like, ah, I know what, I know what that means. 
And so that, that's, that's what these tax collectors were like. They were the worst sort of traitorous, greedy, take their money, working for the enemy, just, just traitors. They were, they were the worst. So that's the person. He's particularly picked the worst person he can think of. And the second person is the Pharisee. And again, I think, I think we all know and have some good idea that they were the religious leaders of the day. Perhaps the only thing to note um, when we come to this parable is that, is that when we come and see the Pharisees, we kind of know that they're the bad guy. Does that make sense? We already, we already know. We kind of know that there's something wrong with them. They're a bit crooked. Um, but when the people that Jesus was teaching to, they thought they were the best. They thought they were the religious elite. They, they gave them honor. They thought they were like the model Jewish believers. Does, it, does that make sense? So to them, to them it's, it comes across differently. And so what Jesus exposes here would have actually shocked them. And for us, we come to it and we're like, oh, Luke 18, there's a Pharisee, it's a tech. I know, I know where this one's going. Um, but I think we often let ourselves off the hook a little too easily. So what I want to look at now is rightly understood. If we rightly understand that the true character of who these Pharisees really would, we would, we would be quite shocked too. And so we're, if, we were, if we were in danger, and I'm talking just generally, I don't want to lump everybody in here, but if we were in danger of being any one of these two people, I think most of us are more likely to be the Pharisee than the, than the tax collector. If there was, I'm not saying we are, but just, just generally speaking, if there was a possibility that we could be more like one, I think we, we could think of ourselves more like the Pharisee. Um, and there may be, potentially, there's some people here today that are, are like the, the tax collector. They're just living in gross and obvious sin. Um, and, and perhaps if that's you today, you might want to follow in the narrative as we go through follow what happens to the tax collector rather than the Pharisee. But, but I do want to look closer at the Pharisee. Listen to what he does. This is the Pharisee. He, we know he goes to the temple. So you could say he was a regular attender at church and he would have turned up on time every Sabbath. So he's, he's a good regular attender. He turns up every time. He believed in the true and living God. He believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is true of the Pharisee. So he wasn't part of a cult. Um, he acknowledges and worships the true God. Uh, we see him in this parable praying. So he's a man of prayer. And, and if we're fair to him, he more than likely prayed even more than we do. He was devout and he prayed. Um, we see him as a man who knows God and he obeys God's law, which, which makes him a Bible reader. And he's not just a person that professes his faith. He, he's a doer of God's law. Um, he was a student of Scripture and one who lived his life obeying God. And so acknowledging God as a lawgiver, it also makes him uh, someone that acknowledges God as Lord. And so we could, say, we could say that he's a lordship man. He's not a carnal Christian. In all these ways, he was a dedicated and devout follower of Yahweh. Is that, we can see all those things about this, this Pharisee. So he was... He was not like other people, and there was a clear difference between how he lived and the life of the ungodly as well. But to be honest, when we think about it, that should be the case with us as well. We should be living a different way, and we should look different than the world around us. And so that's in and of itself not a terrible thing either. But there is one point I want to point out to you about this Pharisee, and it's, it's quite significant. And you can see by his prayer in verse 11, if you look at verse 11, we can see that this, this Pharisee, he even knew something of grace. That kind of, we're like, maybe he's a Protestant. He knew something of grace. And if you look 
If you look at what he prays, his prayer says this. It says he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. I thank you. And he even indicates some thanks to God, acknowledges some grace from God for the way that he is what he is. Um, and you know, in, in recent years, there's been a huge amount of debate in New Testament scholarship about the true nature of the Jewish religion. So they, they want to know what was the true Jewish religion when we read our Bibles. How, how did it look? What did they practice? And some would have us believe that the Reformers, they got it all wrong. Um, they would say that, they, they, that the Reformers would assume, uh, they would say that uh, the Jews and the Pharisees, they believed in a works-based system of salvation, and we believe we're saved by grace through faith. So the Pharisees believed in a works-based system of salvation. And they would say that the Reformers, they, they made a mistake. They mistakenly read the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, they read that context into their interpreting of the Bible, and then they projected that onto the Pharisees. That's what they say. And so um, they would say that that reformed view wouldn't really accurately describe the, the religion of the day, the Second Temple Judaism. And what they believed, this, this, and so what I'm talking about is people that advocate what's called the new perspective on Paul, they, they would say that the Jews actually believed that they were saved by grace, and that that's where a lot of our mistakes come from. But what I think we're starting to see in this passage is there, there actually was some, some understanding of grace in this Pharisee, but, and there's a, there's a really big but here, but there was still a very subtle thing that they got wrong. And so there was a, there was a deficiency in their understanding of God's grace. So there's some acknowledgement, but there's something very wrong with the way they understood God's grace. And they thought God had been gracious to them and so we see that in his prayer, he thanks God, but ultimately, ultimately, and, and I guess trumping that grace, they believed that the reason they differed from other people was due to something in themselves. And so that's their error, that's what they get wrong. And so throughout church history, we think, oh, you know, this Pharisee, we know him, he's, he's a terrible guy. But throughout church history, this, this same uh, way of thinking it's a subtle truth. It creeps into the church, and it has for 2,000 years. And so what I want you to do is to imagine a spectrum. So there's a range of different views. And on one side, you've got what theologically we would we'd call down this end, we'd call it a Pelagian view. And they basically throw away God's grace, and they say there's almost nothing of God's grace, but it's all of me. I just do it myself. I be good. I obey God's law. And, and so there's almost no grace, and it's completely our good deeds and our work. And then you come down the spectrum a little bit and you have what would be called a semi-Pelagian. And you might think of him as someone who, who like this Pharisee, acknowledges something of God's grace. He says, oh, thank God that I am the way I am. But ultimately, and trumping that grace, he, he sees that God was gracious and I did some good works. And, I, and, and in and of myself, I'm a good person. So you go from one that's all works, no grace, to say 50-50, it's gracious and I, and I contribute to it. And then you come down to views which would say uh, fit in more of an Arminian category. And they would say, oh, no, 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 you, God is really gracious. He's so gracious. But ultimately, the reason why I differ from another person when I stand before God, the reason that makes me differ is God is that gracious, but there's this tiny little bit that's in and of myself. That, that determines why, I'm, why I differ from another person, why I differ from a sinner. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's, there's the Christian view, which basically says 
that there's nothing in myself and all of it was by grace. Does that make sense? And so what you have is a range of views. And sometimes, sometimes when we're looking at the Bible, we're trying to find a balance. But sometimes when we're looking at the Bible, there's a wrong answer and there's a right answer. And, and if you come and talk to me afterwards and say, oh, our, our assistant pastor got up and preached down, he got a little bit controversial. You can, you can just say this, all I'm trying to teach and, all I'm try- and I am trying to argue for something, I'm trying to argue that we're saved by God's grace alone. That's the only thing I'm trying to say, is that it was all of God's grace and it was nothing in ourselves. And so, yeah, and so... And I think what we're, starting to, what we're starting to get at in this parable is we're starting to see that that one truth that I said Jesus is trying to teach, it's starting to come out. We're starting to see you know, what, what that's going to look like. Um, but I want you to see that's the Pharisee. Um, and so instead of thinking of these Pharisees like that, they're not relevant to us. We know they're the bad guy. We start looking at him and going, oh my goodness, what he was actually, that shocks even us. It shocks us today. And so imagine this. When you, when you think of the Pharisee like that, um, I think this Pharisee could walk into almost every evangelical church today. He could tell you what he believed. He could tell you how he lived. And I don't think there would be many uh, churches or, or people today that would, would even dare to question his standing as a believer, um, that this guy was, was the real deal religious person. That's, that's the shock of the Pharisee. And it was shocking to them. And if we get it, it's shocking to us as well. Um, so that's what I want you to see. So there's a very subtle, but it's a hugely significant truth that Jesus wants to expose um, that's relevant to our church context. And we need to know and we need to be able to understand what is this one truth. We want to be clear. What is Jesus trying to teach? And so that's the powerful truth um, that we want to get to in our final point. But just as one other, one other side point, and I, I kind of want you to feel this as well a little bit. Sometimes in our culture, if there's a Bible teacher and he has a, he has a fine point of doctrine, he's, he's, um, he's being very precise and making distinctions. Sometimes when we, when we see that thing happen, you know, people will say, he's just a theological nitpicker. He's just picking a tiny, a tiny little thing. Um, they think the finer points of theology, just, it's just an unnecessary splitting of hairs. It's just a waste of time and it's, it's just silly. But I just want you to see that in this parable, I want you to see that's the kind of teacher that Jesus was. He's pressing for a very fine distinction and he, he wants people to understand. And this fine distinction that people might not think is relevant, it's got heaven on one side of it and it's got hell on the other. It's a fine distinction with huge consequences. And so that, that single point of doctrine he will expose in this parable has eternal consequences. And, and I want you to not forget that Jesus was a theology man. He, was, he, he loved to, to clearly understand and define what, what true saving faith was, what true Christianity was. And so, so we have these two people, and we're going to find that they're going to be split by a very fine distinction. And so that's point two. We've seen, we've seen two people. We've seen the Pharisee and the tax collector. We've seen a, a good religious man and we've also seen the opposite. We've seen someone who's an overt and obvious sinner. That's the two characters. And so if you look at our third point, we're going to see two prayers. So our third point is two prayers. And this comes from verse 11 and 12 is the first prayer. Verse 13 is the second. The first prayer, 
If you look at verse 11, it says, The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And so we see the prayer of a man that has confidence. That's that word we pointed out at the beginning. This man has confidence in himself that he was righteous. And he stands confidently before the presence of God. And he looks down. He looks down on the swindlers, the aggressively greedy. He looks down on the unjust, which is the opposite word for righteous. He, he even looks down on the overtly sinful people. And in he, he, and, and our text it says, like the adulterers. And even, you can imagine him turning his head and out, out the corner of his eye, and he goes, even like this disgusting tax collector. That's his attitude. That's, so that's the first prayer. The second prayer, we see the second prayer in verse 13, and it says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so in total contrast, we see the sinner um, with no confidence in himself and his own righteousness, he, he approaches God in a completely different manner. He approaches God just, just timidly. And our text says that he, st- he stands before God just like the other guy, but he doesn't just boldly walk in there and stand before God. It says, in our text, it says he stands some distance away. He kind of shuffles in there, keeps distance. He can't even look up to heaven. And, and, you know, when we're embarrassed or we're ashamed, often we look down at the ground, don't we? Sometimes we can't even look another person in the eye. Um, so this man, he knows he's a sinner. He has no good works to stand on. All he can do is cry out to God for mercy. And this man isn't, isn't praying for mercy. This man is begging for mercy. In the words of the Sermon on the Mount, this man, um, he's the prototypical illustration of what it means to be poor in spirit, that we have to be poor in spirit before we can come to God. And so spiritually speaking, he's utterly bankrupt. He's got no spiritual riches or good deeds that he's going to lay up to God as his credit to get into heaven. Um, so we see him beating his breast, and this is a sign of mourning. So it's, he, he's, a, he's miserable, and he's totally ruined over his sin, and he's just deeply grieved. And, he, and it's so bad that he's beating his chest. It's, it's kind of the same extent of grieving as if somebody had died, somebody close to him had died, and he's that, he's that cut up, and he's... He's pounding on his chest. He's crying out to God and he's pleading for some way to undo all the stupid things that he's done. He's crying out for God to somehow wash away all of his sin. So that's the second prayer. So we've seen, um, we've seen one parable and we've seen two people and we've seen two prayers. And so we're up to our fourth point. And our fourth point is that we have one propitiation. And we, we, we get this from verse 13. So we have two people walked up to the temple to meet with God. Two people prayed two different prayers, but only one person's sin was propitiated. And you might be wondering, I never, you might say, I never saw propitiation in that passage. But I want you to look at verse 13. And it says of his prayer, he was, he was praying, God be merciful to me. And that, that word for merciful, uh, merciful uh, is the same word used in Hebrews 2 verse 7. And so I'm going to read, you don't have to look there, but I'm going to read you Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7. And it says, Therefore he, which is Jesus, had to be made like all his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. And it says, to make propitiation 
for the sins of the people. And that, that word to make propitiation is exactly the same word that we have for he's crying out that God would be gracious to him. Um, so propitiation, it speaks of God, uh, God's wrath, um, his wrath being satisfied. So the sin is crying out for some way um, that God's anger can be absorbed, that there may be some way that the penal sanctions of God's law um, could be met, that he could somehow, is it God, is there some way that I can be forgiven? And look how the parable ends. It ends like this. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so we see one man is humbled, one man is forgiven, um, you know, one man's proud, and he's left dead in his sins, and only one man went home to his house, house justified. And so justification, I'll just read a definition. It says, Justification is that instantaneous act of God whereby, as a gift of his grace, he imputes to a believing sinner the full and perfect righteousness of Christ through faith alone and legally declares him perfectly righteous in his sight, forgiving the sinner of all unrighteousness and thus delivering him from all condemnation. And so the sinner was the one that went home justified. And that brings us up to our final point. And so our final point is one powerful truth. And as I've said the whole way through, we're trying to work out what is the one meaning what, 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 what is the point that Jesus, he's designed this whole parable to teach a single idea. And we've seen all the people involved. We've seen the way it plays out. We've seen the Pharisee. We've seen the tax collector. But we've, we've got to ask, what is the key point of difference between these two people? Exactly. I want to be so, I want to know exactly how do I understand this parable? How do I differ between these two people? Um, and so as I mentioned at the beginning, um, the key to unlocking the whole parable was right at the beginning. It says they trusted. He, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so that's the key. They trusted in themselves. The goodness or righteousness that the Pharisee presented before God was his, his own good deeds. So think again of his prayer. What does his prayer say? He says, I, I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes. He's looking inward at himself and the thing that he is presenting to God as his merit and his, his righteousness is in himself. And so he locates his goodness in him. And, and he's basically, it's as if he stands before God and he says, look how good I am. That's, that's, this, that's the Pharisee. And that, that is his fatal flaw. He thinks that ultimately... It's something in himself that makes him differ from other people. And when I say differ from other people, there's people that are sinners and, and are rejected by God that never come to him through faith. And there's people that are right with God that are forgiven. That's what I mean by differ. And he thinks that something in himself is the cause of what makes him differ from other people. But I want to read you Romans chapter 10, verse 3. And so we know in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is going to make known the gospel. He's going to teach them encourage them with the gospel. And you see that the Apostle Paul has the exact same thinking. And he says in Romans 10 verse 3, for not knowing, which is to be ignorant. There was something that they didn't know. That, and this is speaking of the, the, the Jewish religion. Being ignorant about God's righteousness, uh, which means they were ignorant of God's holiness. They were ignorant of the standard of perfection that was required. So 
So not knowing about, they, they never read R.C. Sproul's book on the holiness of God is, what, is basically what they are. And that means that knowing that God was perfect and just a being of far superior standard of righteousness, and it says, and seeking to establish their own. So not knowing God's standard, they sought to establish their own standard of righteousness at their own level that was attainable by mankind, not knowing about the holiness of God. They, they set a level down here, and, and that was their error. They sought to establish their own righteousness. And that's their particular fault. That's what they got wrong. And so if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says in there, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel for in it. So he's saying in the gospel, something in the gospel. He says the righteousness or the goodness of God is revealed. The goodness of God is revealed. It's made known. And so um, this is the verse that Luther struggled with because he thought it meant that, that high standard of God by which he's just. But it's speaking of something differently. It's saying the righteousness of God is revealed. And so we've identified the exact problem but I haven't given you the exact solution. And so, so what the reformers called this was they called the righteousness from God, they called it an alien righteousness. And so you can think of like something being native and something being foreign. And so alien is like alien. Does that make sense? It's like there's, there's local things, things we're familiar, and then there's, there's things inside us and there's things that are external. So that they called this an alien righteousness for... Um, and so if it's wrong to present, if the, the fault they made was it's wrong to prevent, uh, present a righteousness in ourselves, um, if it's wrong to stack up our good deeds, um, in the gospel we see that the good news is that there is an external righteousness, um, an alien righteousness, and it's offered, us, it's offered to us as a gift, something that's given to us. So we don't have it in ourselves, an alien righteousness, and, and the Bible calls it the righteousness of God. And so it's as if God's holiness was somehow given to us. And, and, and so if you turn with me to one last verse. Uh, one verse in Philippians chapter 3. And follow me, just I'll, I'll kind of skim through it, but this is from, taken from Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul, he says, For we are the true circumcision and worship in the Spirit of God. And it says, In glory in Christ Jesus. And I love that he says that. He glories in Christ Jesus. And, and he puts, and, and, and notice what he says, he puts no confidence in the flesh. And so the Pharisee, what did he do at the beginning? He put his confidence in the flesh. He put his confidence in himself. But Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh. Um, that's, that's the teaching. And in verse 4 there, uh, it says, although, and, and you know this as well, so Paul recounts his life, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone, if there was anyone good enough, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, and he, and he lists, he stacks up all his good things, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless he was just like that rich young ruler he was just just like that para, uh, the pharisee in our parable but he says but whatever things this verse 7 but whatever things were gained to him he now counts them as rubbish and so we even hear him teaching things like his good deeds are nothing but what filthy rags his best things his best achievements were just rubbish and he speaks of wanting to gain christ and to be found in him and notice this he want, he wants to be found 
And it's, I'm just emphasizing the same thing. I've already told you the answer. But he, he, he wants to be found not having a righteousness of my own, <clears throat> but that which comes through faith in Christ. And he says the righteousness which comes from God is that alien righteousness. So that's the key. There's, there's two types of people, and there's only two types of people, and there's only two types of religion. You can split all the religions in the world into these two categories, and there are only two types of righteousness. There are those that put confidence in themselves and their own good deeds, and there are those that understand the gospel, that there's an alien or, an, or that external righteousness given as a gift. Um, and so that... And so the Bible teaches really that there was only one man that ever, ever walked this planet that was good enough to stand before God. There's only one man, the Bible says, was holy, harmless, undefiled. Who am I talking about? And so we have confidence in him. Pray, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ.